Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
We have a long way to go this morning and a very limited amount of time to get there. And yet I would like to take a moment to talk about what's going on on the other side of the world right now. It's impossible to ignore Russia and Ukraine. I don't know how many of you saw the videos, though, of saints gathered in the subways singing praises to God while there were bomb strikes going on just above their heads. It was pretty impressive to watch. I have long contended that one of the problems with modern-day American Western Christianity is that there's really no price to pay to be an American Christian. We're comfortable. We've got carpeting. We've got air conditioning. We drive nice cars. We eat good food, wear good clothes. There's no real price to pay. When we're done here and we walk out the front door, there's no one waiting there to kill us for our Christianity. And yet... The history of the world is that the church has been fertilized with the blood of the saints. And as much hardship, difficulty, and warfare as there is in this world, it produces greater levels of faith, confidence in God, and growth in the Christian church. It's a really astounding thing. So we need to continue to pray for the saints in Ukraine. And I have to say that I've been impressed by the kind of Christianity that I have seen publicly displayed coming out of Ukraine. In many ways, it puts Western Christianity to shame. Because if we have a little bit of hardship, then it's, well, well, I can't go to church. Well, I can't go worship God. Well, I can't go do that because I have a little hardship in my life. Anybody here had bombs dropped on them lately? No? Well, then you have no excuse not to worship God because the saints in Ukraine are still doing that, and it's truly, truly encouraging to watch. All right, as I said, we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. Starting at Revelation chapter 6, don't turn there. John is going to start using language that is almost shorthand for things that have already been written about, talked about, prophesied about in the Old Testament. As I have repeated as we've been going through the book of Revelation, I keep trying to drive home to you that this is a very, very Jewish book and is very dependent on the Hebrew scriptures. And the better you know your Hebrew scriptures, the more sense you can make out of the book of Revelation. And this is demonstrated here in chapter 6, where John, from this point forward, really, through the whole rest of the book, is going to make references back to these Old Testament things. And so we have to have at least a grounding in these Old Testament concepts in order to understand what's being written here. Last week, I received a very nice compliment from someone. I won't name names. He looked a lot like Jeff. And he said to me, I appreciate the way you have been handling the book of Revelation so far because you've been concentrating on the revelation of Jesus Christ and you have not been getting lost in the weeds. Today, 
we're going to go traipsing through the weeds. And uh, hopefully nobody will get lost there. Let's start this morning in, in the book of Daniel. It's really the best place to start. If you don't know the book of Daniel, you're not going to understand the book of Revelation. The book of Daniel is so accurate in predicting future kingdoms that Daniel, more so than just about any other Old Testament prophetic book, has come under a lot of attack, especially in the last couple of hundred years. In the late 1800s, the German higher critics attempted to late date the book of Daniel because they said there's just no way that Daniel could have known with such accuracy, with such specificity, he could not have known what was going to happen in the future. And so they argued that it was during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, a couple hundred years before Jesus, that the book of Daniel was actually written, so that it was written after the fact. It was not prophecy in advance. And yet, if you read the Bible itself, the Bible gives credibility to Daniel. God gives credibility to Daniel. Jesus gives credibility to Daniel, and all John is really doing is joining in that chorus of people who are giving credibility to the book of Daniel. For instance, in Ezekiel, God himself, speaking to Ezekiel in chapter 14, starting at verse 13, you don't need to turn there, but just listen for a moment. God speaking to Ezekiel says to him, Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, And I stretch out my hand against it, and I destroy its supply of bread and send famine against it and eliminate from it both human and animal life, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst. By their own righteousness, they could only save themselves, declares the Lord God. So here is God himself mentioning righteous men. And he mentions Job and Noah. We would all agree because we know the story of Job, but we know the story of Noah. And then God picks Daniel as the prophet to mention in the category of righteous men. So God gives credibility to the writing of Daniel. If Daniel is a late date forgery, God got confused. God made a mistake. He was apparently talking about some other Daniel. But then in Matthew 24, Jesus himself says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, then let the reader understand. So Jesus himself refers to the book of Daniel as being written by the prophet Daniel. If Daniel was a late date forgery, then Jesus is confused. He just got it plain wrong except that God, in the book of Ezekiel, and Jesus both give credibility to the book of Daniel. History gives credibility to the book of Daniel, because when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, in my own lifetime, or maybe just before, seven years before I was born then, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the book of Daniel was in there, which pushes it backwards in history beyond the date that the late daters were claiming was the date of Daniel. So the book of Daniel has a tremendous amount of historic prophetic credibility. 
turn to Daniel 9. That's where we're going to begin this morning. But in order for you to understand that what Daniel says here is bedrock to what John is going to talk about as we continue through the book of Revelation, and Daniel has a tremendous amount of credibility. So whatever Daniel says, we don't get to argue with it, or else you are arguing with the testimony that God and Jesus have already put forward, and that history has put forward. So there's my defense of Daniel in a nutshell. We're going to start reading at Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. God willing, we're going to read chapter 9, then chapter 7, then chapter 8 of Daniel. I'm hopefully going to do it with minimal comment. That's not possible. But um, I want you to understand some of the terminology of Daniel because John is going to pick it up. In particular, John is about to tell us about the seven seals. We know from last week that Jesus is the one who takes the scroll with the seven seals out of the hand of God. Starting at chapter 6, he loosens the first of those seals, and we are introduced to a character on a white horse. And then John just keeps moving on, and he goes on to war, and he goes on to famine, and he goes on to death and Hades. And he just leaves this character on a white horse just hanging out there. Why does John do that? Because he knows the Old Testament has already identified that character for us. And so he can just mention it and keep moving. The place where he is best described is in the book of Daniel. Chapter 9 of the book of Daniel is going to tell us about a very specific time period. Oh, speaking of which, if you would, Tom, look up Jeremiah 25. I'm going to have you read verses 11 and 12. And Steve, if you would, Jeremiah 29, and you're going to read verses 10 to 14. There is a time period that's going to be described here in Daniel 9. The common thinking, the popular thinking... I believe the correct thinking is that the time period that Daniel is about to describe is the same time period that John is describing in the book of Revelation. Daniel is about to say that he was reading during the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. He was of the Medians. And he was the king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. And in the first year of his reign... Daniel observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Tom is now going to read that passage from Jeremiah 25 verses 11 and 12 in which Jeremiah is going to identify that exact time period, if you would. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Similarly, in Jeremiah 29, which Steve is now going to read for us, we see this same recitation of 70 years. Steve? For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you 
and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So in both of those passages, Jeremiah predicted that Judah was going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Now Daniel is in Babylon. Daniel was among the first wave of deportees to Babylon. And he is writing that during the time of Darius the Mede, he received, he understood through reading the books, the scrolls, reading particularly in Jeremiah, that the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem were going to take 70 years. Verse 3, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled even turning aside from your commandments and your ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are nearby and all those who are far away and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against thee. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, thy servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Daniel is praying, he is admitting the fault, the sin, the rebellion, the lawlessness of Israel. In the law of Moses, again, Daniel is referring to scripture, in the law of Moses, God said, obey my law, do what I tell you, or I will punish you, and I will drive you out of your land. So Daniel is admitting here, you said you were going to do that, and now you're doing that. That's why we're in the state we're in. That's why Israel, the northern tribes, are scattered. That's why the southern tribes are in Babylon. Because, God, you told us from the beginning, do it your way, or you would drive us out of the land. 
And so he is admitting we deserve to be driven out of our land because we have rebelled against you. We have sinned against you. And thus he has, verse 12, thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has never been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come on us. And yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to the truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all the deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who has brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for thyself, as it is this day, we have sinned. We have been wicked, O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts. Let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. For because of our sins and our iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications for thy sake, O Lord. Let thy face shine on the desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and see the desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merit of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For thine own sake, O my God, do not delay because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision previously, he came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering, and he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. How did this all begin? It began with Daniel saying, I was reading Jeremiah. Jeremiah said we were going to be here in Babylon for 70 years. Okay, first point of theology I have to throw at you. When Daniel read Jeremiah's prediction of 70 years, how did he, for lack of a better word, interpret it? How did he understand it? He understood it in a very literal fashion because he was literally in Babylon during those literal 70 years. And so he read Jeremiah saying, you're going to be there for 70 years. And he believed it to be 70 years. 
And he prayed to God that God would restore Jerusalem and the temple because the 70 years were about to come to a close. The angel Gabriel shows up and says to him, yep, 70 years. So Daniel was accurate in his approach to understanding the prophecy of Jeremiah by reading it very literally. Just thought I'd throw that in. 70 weeks, this is verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. 70 weeks, very, very interesting. That is the word Shabuah, the word that is translated weeks there. And it is not technically weeks. It is 77s have been decreed. So Daniel is praying about the 70 years that Jeremiah predicted that Judah is in Babylon and the angel Gabriel comes to him and says, not just these 70, but there are 70 more sevens. How do you think Daniel conceived of that? Well, he obviously understood it in a very literal, genuine fashion because the previous prophecy was in a very literal, obvious fashion. They had been in Babylon 70 years, just like Jeremiah said. Now an angel comes and says, 70 more sevens are predicted for you. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. When Jeremiah predicted the 70, it was 70 years in Babylon, which turned out to be literally the truth. Daniel knows, he's living through it, that it is actually 70 years. So when Gabriel says 77s are decreed for you, it is commonly assumed that that's 70 times 7 years. In other words, 490 years. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. To do this, this is very, very important. Six things are going to be listed here. During this period of time, this 490 years, whenever it is, during those 490 years, these things have to happen. Number one, to finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sin. Number three, to make atonement for iniquity. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And number six, to anoint the most holy place, the Koresh Koreshim. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Therefore, even to the end, there will be a war, and desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Okay, so what is that all about? Let's start with the six things that are listed there. 
There are six things that have to happen or else this period of time, this 70 times 7, is not finished until these six things take place. In the Hebrew, it is much more precise than even our English rendering of it. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation or atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. And these 77s cannot be over until all six of those things have actually been accomplished. Now, I'm going to defer for a moment to Fred Zaspel's writing. He wrote a book called Daniel's 70 Weeks, and he is much more studied in the language of Hebrew than I will ever be. But here's how he clarified those six things. The first of them, translated bring to an end, kalah, speaks of actual ending, finishing, or firmly restraining. And precisely what is firmly restrained is hapesha, which is transgression, which probably is to be understood as rebellion, waywardness, or that principle of evil within men. So think about that for just a moment. The first thing that has to happen during these 490 years is that there has to be a complete ending, a firm restraint of the rebellion and principle of evil within men. That has to be accomplished, or these 490 years are not finished yet. Mm. Secondly, the verb tamam, which means to complete or make an end, which is why the King James and the NASB use the phrase, make an end of it. And what is it that is going to be brought to a complete end? I don't know if I'll say this right. Steve can correct me. What's being brought to an end is tata'ot, which means sins, personal daily sins, the activity of sin. In either case, the thought is that there's going to be a complete end made of sin as such, as a thing. Sin is going to come to an end. So there's going to be a complete cessation, a complete restraint of transgression and rebellion against God, and a complete end of sin as a thing. That has to happen in the 490 years. The third thing was make an atonement for guilt, which promises the complete expiation for sinfulness. Now, all three of these First things speak of the removal of sin and guilt. And that sin and guilt, as we just read in Daniel's prayer, that is the sin and guilt that is the cause of Israel's captivity. So you can see why the angel would come to Daniel after that prayer and say to him, 77s are decreed against you, your people, your land. And during that time, there's going to be a complete payment, expiation, and doing away with your sins and transgressions, the very thing you have been confessing. Sin itself as an inward principle and as a practice has to be ended. Those sins that were previously committed are going to be pardoned. 
And the 70 weeks will see the complete removal of the sin of Daniel's people forever. And by contrast, then, these last three that we're going to read are speaking of blessings that are going to be given as a result of the work of God in the complete forgiveness and doing away with sin and rebellion. The fourth is to bring in everlasting righteousness. That signifies the complete opposite of everything that's gone before. The state of Israel, according to Daniel's prayer, is nothing but sin and rebellion. God is going to pay for it. He's going to remove it. He's going to do away with it. And then he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Their sinfulness is going to be traded for holiness, righteousness, perfection. That all has to happen in the 490 years. The fifth thing is to seal up the vision and the prophets or the prophecy. And that signifies the final fulfillment of the prophetic vision of the entirety of the Old Testament prophets. This is an easy one. Has that happened yet? (laughs) No. No. And yet somewhere in this 490 years, there's going to be a sealing up, a completion, a final fulfillment of the Bible's prophetic revelation. Number six, then, is to anoint the Kodesh Kodeshim, to establish the Holy of Holies. This is really important. If you remember the time frame, Daniel is in Babylon because the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed which means not only the holy place, but the holiest of holies is ruined. And yet here is God, through Gabriel, promising the people of Daniel that not only is the temple going to be reestablished, but that in this 490 years, there's going to be an anointing of the holiest place yet again. That speaks of the ritual consecration of the Jewish temple again. So, let me sum up. The 70 weeks are going to see the complete removal of Israel's sins forever. The 70 weeks are going to see the establishment of everlasting righteousness and the final fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy and the consecration of the temple. And all of that helps us to establish the time frame of the prophecy that Daniel is receiving. Clearly, it involves the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus coming to the planet, dying on the cross, is the accomplishment, the expiation of sin. So certainly that's involved. But I don't think anybody would say that Jesus also has completely put an end to the sins of Israel. Is anyone going to make that argument for me? I think we could say, yes, Jesus has expiated their sin, sure, but he hasn't in actuality brought a complete finish, a complete end to their rebellion. And there are a whole lot of Old Testament prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, and so that's not accomplished yet, and at this very moment there is no established Holy of Holies over in Jerusalem. I'm back in Daniel 9. 
Verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that's Jesus himself, there will be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. That makes a total of 69 weeks. I am a math wizard. (laughs) That, by the way, means that there's a week left out. There's another week somewhere. We don't have a totality of all 490 of these years by the time Jesus gets here. He says instead that there's going to be seven weeks, 62 weeks until Jesus comes, and that the city is going to be built again, plaza and moat, even in times of distress. We know that from the book of Nehemiah. We know about that decree that came originally from Cyrus. We know that ultimately Artaxerxes is the Persian prince who put the decree finally into action. So we have a pretty good idea of what the starting point is. And there are books that attempt to mathematically prove that from the moment of that decree until Jesus coming into Jerusalem during the uh, triumphal entry, that that is actually the fulfillment of those years. In other words, what Daniel just said here, that from the going forth of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince is going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks, that happened. That's my point. Jesus did come, and the very fact that Jesus came tells you that those seven weeks and those 62 weeks, that total of 69 weeks, have already been accomplished. But there's this week sitting out there somewhere, and there's these things that have to happen within the time frame of the 70 weeks of years. Have I lost anybody yet? I'm laboring to be as clear as I can be with this. Because in verse 26 it says, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. I like the King James rendering of it, but not for himself. The NASB says, and he will have nothing. And then there's this other character, this other person, the people of the prince who is to come. And what does that prince do? Destroy the city. And the sanctuary. And its end is going to come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, that character, that prince to come, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. There's your other week. So you've got 77s. By the time Jesus gets here, 69 of those sevens are accounted for. The one that is still sitting out there somewhere is going to be accomplished when this person comes. Now, why am I harping on this? Because the beginning of Revelation 6 is that Jesus opens the first seal and on a white horse 
comes a man who is given to conquer. He goes out conquering and to conquer. He's carrying a bow. He has great authority, yet people like to point out that even though he has a bow, he has no arrows. Daniel's going to explain that for us because he actually conquers by making covenants of peace with people and then conquering those people. So John just drops that little piece. And that is why I contend that the entire rest of what we're going to read in Revelation up until chapter 20, essentially, is this period of time that is known as the 70th week of Daniel. Because during that 70th week, he, that character to come, who is referred to as the little horn, who is referred to as the beast, who is nicknamed the Antichrist, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wings of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, and is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This is why Jesus made reference in Matthew 24 to the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Because Daniel the prophet speaks of the desolation and the abomination of the one who's going to make the temple desolate again. Okay, that was all introduction. I told you we've got a long way to go and not much time to get there. But I just wanted to establish the notion of Daniel's 70th week. Is everybody pretty clear on that? Have you got that piece? Mm -hmm. If you've got that piece, then you're going to understand some of the other things that John is going to refer to as we continue through Revelation because they're going to hearken right back to Daniel. But now, if you would... Turn back to Daniel chapter 7, because I want to focus in on this character, this man on the white horse with his bow going out to conquer, this one who is introduced by Daniel's vision, by the angel Gabriel explaining to him that there is this one who is going to come on the wings of abomination and make the temple desolate. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and a vision in his mind as he lay on his bed, and he wrote the dream down, and he related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in the vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and he had the wings of an eagle, and I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up off the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings like a bird. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth, and it devoured, and it crushed, and it trampled down the remainder with its feet. 
and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among those ten. Three of the first horns were pulled up by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Anybody want to interpret that for us? It's okay, you don't need to. Daniel's going to do it for you. This is really, really helpful when the Bible interprets itself. By the way, we've gone verse by verse through the entire book of Daniel, and that is on our website. You can go look it up. Just hit the listen link, go to the archives, and you can listen to verse-by-verse explanation of all this. I'm just trying, as I said, to hone in on this little horn. Who is he? At verse 9, it says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. There it is again, that chariot of clouds with wheels and burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending to him. That sounds very much like what we read out of Revelation just last week. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat, and the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which that little horn was speaking. And I kept looking until that beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was given to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and all the nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel My spirit was distressed within me, and the vision in my mind kept alarming me, and I approached one of those who were standing by, and I began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me, and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. Great! Really helpful! Verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise out of the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come. So Daniel is predicting a succession of kingdoms in the Middle East that all are going to oppress Israel. They are all earthly physical, genuine kingdoms. And then Daniel is told, and there's a kingdom coming, the kingdom of Christ that belongs to the saints. The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come. So then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and exceedingly dreadful, 
with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze. And it devoured and it crushed and it trampled down the remainder with its feet. And I want to know the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war against the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And thus he said, That fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole world and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he'll be different from the previous ones, He will subdue three kings, and he will speak out against the Most High, and he will wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in the law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. How long is that? Three and a half. What is three and a half half of? Seven. We're talking about the 70th week here. The last set of sevens. Verse 26. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people Of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. And at this point, the revelations ended. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. Subsequent to the one that appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the providence of Elam. And I looked in the vision and I myself was beside Uli Canal. And then I lifted my gaze and I looked and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long But one of them was longer than the other, and the longer came up last. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. And no other beast could stand before him, nor was anyone there to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. I will tell you in advance, this is going to be interpreted for us. So just hang with me and hang with the vision. And then while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming up from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. That's right, a unicorn goat. There's something you don't see every day. 
And he came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and he rushed at him with a mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram, and he shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. And then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. That horn with the notable horn, or that goat with the notable horn, the unicorn goat, that's Alexander the Great. The kingdom he is conquering is the Medo-Persians. Daniel is predicting this in advance. He is telling the Medes and the Persians who it is that is going to conquer them. History tells us he got it exactly right. When Alexander the Great was still just a young man, so the story goes, he was sitting outside the gates of Babylon, weeping because there were no more worlds to conquer in his early 30s. What have I done with my life? (laughs) Unbelievable what he accomplished. But then he died at a very young age. And because his only son was still a child, who was later murdered, His kingdom went not to his posterity, but to his four generals, the four conspicuous horns. And they divided up Alexander's kingdom, east, west, north, and south. Exactly like Daniel said was going to happen. Can you see now why the German higher critics would say, there's no way he could know that? Because he knows this in such specificity and detail. But notice that as the vision is describing kings... They're being described as horns. These horns signify their power. Large horns, little horns, notable horns. Verse 9. Out of those four conspicuous horns, the four generals of Alexander the Great, who divided up his kingdom, out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. What's the beautiful land? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And it grew to the host of heaven. As we continue here, we're going to find that this is a demonically driven, demonically inspired, demonically inhabited character. And it grew to the host of heaven and caused some of the host of heaven and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. That's Christ himself. It's one of the reasons that he is referred to as against Christ or substitute Christ or anti-Christ. He magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host. And he removed the regular sacrifice from Christ. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking. 
And another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgressions cause horror so as to allow the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the holy place will be properly restored And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, that I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was the one who looked like a man, and I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and he said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he had come, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank down into a deep sleep with my face on the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said to me, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represent the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is its first king. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not in his power. And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty. But not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree, and he will prosper and perform his will, and he will destroy mighty men and holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. And he will be broken without human agency. And the vision of the evening and the morning, which has been told to you, is true. But keep the vision secret, because it pertains to many days in the future. That phrase, in the future, is added by the NASB translators, it pertains to many days. Verse 27, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. And then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. That's why the angels had to explain it to him, because there was no interpreter the way that Daniel was an interpreter of Nebuchadnezzar's visions, there was nobody who could interpret Daniel's visions for him. That's the little horn. That's what he's going to do when he gets here. And he's going to do it during Daniel's 70th week. You got all that? Got it. Yes, sir. 
still introduction. I'm still introducing, and the clock is working against me. I promise I'm going to get you out of here by 3.30, maybe 4 o'clock. We're going to be okay. It was a joke, Jim. That, that was just a, that was a joke. Second Thessalonians. Paul talks about this same character. Describes him the same way. Which means, by the way, that as of 60, 63 A.D., that character still had not arrived on the planet. Now, we know that the 69 weeks of years came to their completion at the coming of the Messiah and then being cut off 30, 31, 32, 33 A.D., somewhere in there, Jesus died. Gap of time, 30 years later, Paul is writing and still predicting that this is someone who is still to come. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting at verse 1. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you be not quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a letter as if it is from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. We have not talked yet in any great extent about the day of the Lord, but the Old Testament describes the day of the Lord over and over and over again. It is the time of God's wrath. These people in Thessalonica were under great persecution. They thought perhaps they were in the day of the Lord. Paul is answering them and saying, no, there are things that have to happen before the day of the Lord. So don't let anybody convince you, even if they have a letter as if it's from me, don't let them convince you that the day of the Lord has come No one is to deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, the apostasia, which we've talked about extensively, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that he will be revealed in his time For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is removed. And then that lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord will eliminate with the breath of his mouth. And bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. With all power and false signs and wonders. And with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not accept the love of the truth so as to be saved. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. This is where we get the language of Antichrist. John says, children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... Same thing Paul said. He's coming. In the same way that Paul said, but the mystery of iniquity is already at work. John agrees and says, even though he's coming, even now, many antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that it is the last hour. 1 John 4, starting at verse 1, says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit 
But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now it is already in the world. But you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Thus ends the introduction. Turn to Revelation 6. Verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. That's where we'll pick up in two weeks, because then there's going to be war, then there's going to be famine, then there's going to be death and martyrdom. That all starts happening when that character comes on the scene of history. Do you have some sense of who he is now? Mm-hmm. He's Daniel's little horn. He is the beast to come. He is the Antichrist. I don't care what you call him. He is the demonically inspired servant of God who is going to appear in the course of history exactly when God determines he was going to appear. And he's going to accomplish exactly what God determined he was going to accomplish as God pours out his wrath and the final guarantee that he has not been on planet earth yet is that he is the one that is destroyed by the brightness of the coming of Christ when he comes to establish his kingdom and that hasn't happened yet. And yet Everything that Daniel said has to happen does have to happen. Daniel read Jeremiah very literally. I read Daniel very literally because Paul and Jesus took it very literally. So what do we get? One verse? (laughs) I feel good. We're making progress. Take my life and let it be Only, always, all for thee.
Father, we are thankful for this morning, for this opportunity to once again look into your word and once again to be reminded of your sovereignty and your control as it pertains to world events and the end times and to know that uh, you have determined and set all of those things and they will come to be and they will come to pass at the particular time you determine them to and in the way in which you determine them to. And so that gives us great confidence, that gives us great peace to know that you are in control and you have given us the promises that you have and that also gives us hope and peace and joy now when we look at uh, what's transpired in the world this week to know that uh, there is evil in the world there is there are those who desire to conquer there are those who desire to control others for their own purpose for their own greed we see the depravity of men on display everywhere uh, and you control all of that and so um, we do pray that you would be with those in Ukraine who are under attack particularly the, the body of Christ, the believers there that are standing strong and see it as a priority to proclaim and to sing your praises despite what's going on around them. And that is encouraging to us. So uh, we ask for your protection for them, their families, their loved ones, and, and that you receive praise and glory and honor in whatever the outcome is in that conflict. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.